Welcome to Manufacturing Tomorrow, focusing on advanced manufacturing innovations, solutions, and partnerships that exist in our region now and in the future. Hello, you're listening to Manufacturing Tomorrow, brought to you by the Ohio Manufacturing Institute at The Ohio State University. I'm Marty Kress, your host for this segment. Today we are speaking with Pete Buca. Pete is the Vice President of the Technology and Innovation for Parker Hannafin's Fluid Connectors Group. Pete is currently responsible for engineering and new product development for this group. The division has over 400 new product programs in their pipeline, and they contribute substantially to Parker's growth and financial performance. During his 35 years of work with Parker, Pete has introduced product, process, and service innovations, and led teams in the commercialization of these new ideas. Pete was responsible for the development of Parker's macro spray technology and its deployment for use in electronics cooling. He was also responsible for using statistical process control to improve and expand manufacturing operations at Parker's Aerospace Group, and Pete's cooperative development effort with the Cleveland Clinic Innovation Group is soon to emerge into something very exciting. Pete earned his bachelor's degree of industrial engineering at Cleveland State University and his master's of business administration at Baldwin Wallace University. It's a real pleasure to invite Pete, a longtime friend and colleague, to the show. Pete, welcome. Thank you, Marty. Uh, good to be here. One of the things that's been a central theme of the show since we've started it is there's an image of manufacturing. And what you just described is totally different from what people see as a grimy building, bad environmental conditions. Um, talk about, you know, the, the, the manufacturing facility of the future. And at the same time, give the listeners a little insight into some of the things that you're looking at, like biomimicry. Because w when I hear more and more about Parker, I think it's the rebirth of Thomas Edison. I think it's really fascinating. Could you give them a little bit of a, if you walk into one of the plants and facilities, what don't you see that people think you're going to see? Uh, yeah, that's a great point. Uh, you know, when I was a, a, a kid growing up in Cleveland, Marty, um, I had a choice. Um, you know, I could have been a tradesman. My father was a carpenter. Uh, plumbing looked like an attractive trade to me, you know. Uh, I could have been uh, an engineer, interesting stuff. I could have gone into fine. I could have done anything, right? And when I looked at that opportunity, I said, you know, in the future, uh, I wanted to create value. I wanted to be the person that made money happen, that, made, that was the root of everything. And that's manufacturing. So I knew nothing about manufacturing in the modern world at that time. And so I, I, when I joined Parker out of college, uh, Parker taught me all about manufacturing. It's the most exciting and interesting and enjoyable thing I've ever done in my life uh, from a, a professional standpoint. Um, and I've never stopped having fun. I, I think very few people really appreciate how much fun it is to go into a factory and work. The image that a factory is uh, a dingy place to work, that's totally false these days. They, they, there are certainly dingy factories out there but not in Parker's uh, inventory. The, a modern manufacturing company, uh, factory is now a state-of-the-art place to work. It's, uh, it, it, every bit as clean as an office in some cases, uh, in some cases cleaner than an office. Uh, they look like laboratories, you know. Uh, if I walk into a Parker factory, typically I'm looking at a white floor and a white wall, and they keep it that way because they're so uh, uh, fanatical about the, uh, the cleanliness of the building. The challenges in manufacturing uh, are, uh, uh, really what draws me to it as a profession. Uh, you can walk into work every day and there's some new problem that has to be solved. It's not a, it's not a done deal. Uh, when I look around the room, 
um, and I, I often do this with, with uh, high school kids in the first program we started, just in the first robotics, uh, Marty. I asked them to look around, and I said, you know, everything you see was designed and manufactured by somebody. It was all purposely, purposely created. And the thing is that when people look at around the room, they see these things that are manufactured, they assume that what they're looking at are solved problems. And with my experience in manufacturing, what I understand is they are not solved problems. What they're looking at is a compromise of all the circumstances that were associated with the manufacture of their product. And there's not a single product that you can look at that was designed by a human being that could not be improved. And so that's where I focus. And when I come in manufacturing every day, uh, we, we try to make things better. We make the product better. We make the process better. And whenever we put an effort forth, we never fail to be able to make improvements in the process and in the manufactured product. So if that's not exciting to people, I think manufacturing would not be a good choice for you. But if you want to be challenged every day, it's a great place to be. Uh, the, uh, the amount of things you have to learn every day is also uh, pretty staggering. Uh, there's never a day you can walk into the office or walk into the factory floor and not learn something new about how to do things better. Uh, so that's pretty exciting to me as well. So if you could talk about biomimicry because, again, taking advantage of natural processes to improve systems engineering and product development and all your aspects, that's not what most people would equate with manufacturing either. But it opens up the door to a whole different cadre of students and faculty members and, and researchers around the U.S. in terms of what is the, the potential of the business that you're in. So there are people, uh, uh, there used to be, I think, this perception that there are people who manufacture things. There are people who design things. There are people who use things, right? And uh, I think in today's world, those are all blending together. Uh, and, you know, it's no longer the case where a product would be thought of by somebody in their basement and then completely designed and manufactured in the person's head, and then it arrives out of their basement completely delivered to the world, and uh, they, can, they can change the world with that product. That never really existed, but it's certainly not the case today. So what we look at uh, in terms of trying to do systems designs or system solutions, Marty, is we try to be aware of all the solutions that have been used for similar problems. And the richest solution set in the universe is the universe. Uh, virtually every problem that we can imagine has been solved in some way on a natural level. So there's a library of solutions that are out there. And e even better than that, they've been tested for hundreds, thousands, millions of years, billions of years in some cases by Mother Nature. So the solutions that we see in nature are solutions that have survived literally over billions of years in some cases uh, to arrive at the best solution that we see today. So from a product development standpoint, that is ideal. It's a continual test lab for us. But it's not something that people normally reach to in the design process to, to begin their work. They normally look at that for ideas, but they never really study the natural systems. One of the reasons for that, Marty, is that uh, you know, if you have an engineer who's been trained in mechanical engineering, uh, they may not have the training and the insight to understand what's going on in the natural system, right? So if you want to arrive at a world that is more sustainable, if you want to be in a place where designs are better, where products are, are more reliable, where we get to a, a situation where we have the best products truly, then what we have to do is open up our minds, open up our eyes, and as mechanical engineers or electrical engineers or chemical engineers, we have to open up that circle of thought and include biologists, include archaeologists, include people who study the world around us, not just the, the solution set and the problems that we have contained on our piece of paper that we're studying. Right? So biomimicry is a process that's being developed that really gives people a methodology for opening up those doors and trying to define their problems in such a way so they can include the input of other people 
in, uh, in some of these uh, solutions. And it gives you a way to study nature in a more practiced way and look for things that pertain to your problem. Biomimicry is really a method. It's a process, but it's also something that drives more cooperation between all the, uh, the, the stakeholders in a design's result. And that really, I think, is, is the world we're going towards, is, is more uh, uh, a unified culture, more of a unified problem solving, more of a uh, groupthink, uh, although that's a bad term. Probably more of a, uh, a crowdsourcing. Crowdsourcing, interdisciplinary, right. but the <laughs> fact is lots of different skills and talents are going to be required to solve these problems and getting right. people to learn the work in those different environments. Yeah, we can't put walls up anymore. We have, yeah. to, we have to put doors through the walls. Yeah. You know, there, there, you mentioned uh, you, you spend a lot of time interfacing with universities. What is the value of universities to Parker as you go forward, and how do they fit in your different thrusts and activities? So in, in any industrial company, and Parker's no different, uh, we always are trying to convert uh, learning into uh, some kind of commercial value, right? <clears throat> uh, as a matter of fact, that's our reward. Uh, if we've gotten this equation right, if we've done it right, then we're going to get uh, the market's going to reward us, right? Uh, but what happens in that scenario is that once you've found a good idea, you found a good product, now you have to create an organization that's, that's focused on delivering that product to market and all the details of that. So instead of going wide, you go very deep and focused on that particular product or that value stream, okay? Uh, that's just the nature of the business. And it's, it's not just Parker, but any industrial enterprise, any commercial enterprise is always going to have that problem. It's uh, what we might call a canyon of exploration or a, a focused interest or attention bias, okay? Universities don't have that. Uh, well, not to the same degree. They have a different bias. They're biased to be broad and to look wide uh, and to have many solutions. And they are, they are also uh, the opportunity for networking between disciplines is very high in universities. So I can talk about biologists and archaeologists and engineers getting together and meeting at Parker, but you know, that's really hard to do. At universities, it's really easy to do because they're all there. So uh, the idea that a mechanical engineer can interact with a musician or with an artist or with a biologist, it, it's real on a university scale. Uh, so it's a, it's a place where innovation can be totally different than it is in a company. And it's not because the company's bad or the university's good or vice versa. It's because they're just different focuses for the organizations. The people at universities also, uh, uh, there's a mixture of, uh, uh, I guess, uh, exposure to the problems. So I have very deep people in the faculty who, who understand their specialty very well. But I also have newcomers to the problems, uh, students. And they don't know what's wrong. They don't, they don't know that what they're doing is impossible, Okay. Uh, so some goofy kid can do something that uh, I would never do because I knew you couldn't do it before I started, right? But the kid will come up and, uh, you know, a couple of years ago I was here for the, uh, the Denman uh, Awards and a team of kids and they would, I, I, I don't mean to call them goofy, they were brilliant kids, <laughs> uh, but, you know, uh, it, it's all a, a different relative equation here. They developed a way to make graphene using masking tape, okay? I'm sorry, no, uh, cellophane tape, not masking tape. Um, and, you know, they presented this idea, and it was like, that's incredible, you know? You just developed something that, uh, that, that's a low-cost method for making a very useful material because you didn't know it couldn't be done, right? Absolutely. Uh, at Parker, as much as I foster innovation, we are still not going to invest money in things that we just know have a very low probability of success. Right. Right. Uh, we're going to try to gravitate toward things that are more likely to happen. I, I tell folks when I worked at NASA Glenn, we used to have all these meetings about graphene. 
and it was, <laughs> oh, that's not going to work, that's not going to work. And everywhere I look today, it's working. It's working, <laughs> right. So talk, uh, talk about that. It's a good segue maybe to the last theme. Um, as you know, the Dean of Engineering in Ohio State, Dave Williams, has made two big thrusts, and I know you serve on some of his advisory committees. Uh, one's manufacturing and one's materials, and people mm-hmm. don't always get the connectivity. Talk about that interface for us and the value of materials to manufacturing. Um, thanks. That's a great setup, Marty. That's a great question. Um, the, uh, when I look at the, the impact that innovation has on uh, commercial value, right? So, uh, for instance, uh, if I invented one thing, how many other things can I sell based upon that invention? How many other things can I profit by? How much value can I create throughout the system with it? The thing that I find the most important and fundamental in terms of innovation, in my experience, has been materials. When a new material is invented, it enables a whole new class of inventions, not just product, but processes associated with that material. So for instance, before rubber was invented, right, how would you solve the problem, uh, if rubber was not invented, how would you solve the problem of tires? How would you solve the problem of shoes? How would you solve the problem of shock absorption in an engine, you know? And how would you solve the problem of sealing liquids off? Uh, without rubber, none of those inve- innovations were possible. And think of how many industries were created by the invention of rubber and its variants. And every time a new rubber is generated, that's the kind of impact material innovation has in the world. Um, in our discussion this morning, we were talking about, well, so what's the next thing that has to happen after you invent a material? It's not enough to have the material. You have to have a process that can create value with the material. Now, I think that material is more fundamental because it creates the need for the process, not just the material itself. But the process that invents the material, that develops the material or works with the material, also has many other applications as a market. Uh, So those two things are at the base of the value pyramid in terms of value creation. And whenever I can invent a new material uh, or a variant of material, it is a big win for the company. It's a big win for anybody. Process innovation enables many product innovations in the same way. Uh, We talked about macro spray. Macro spray uh, was a technique that used uh, chemical etching to create passages in metal that could not be machined. Uh, And these passages were, uh, they were chemically smooth. They looked like water had etched them out, okay? And then we invented processes to to deploy that in three-dimensional construction. It was really one of the first additive manufacturing techniques that became commercialized, and it's it's commercial use today. We're able to create um, large-scale structures that uh, provide uh, liquids and spray controls uh, for jet engines and also for cooling that, uh, you know, uh, really changed those two markets. The... uh, the, the process techniques that we use could be applied in many, many other ways, and we're exploring all those ways as well. Uh, but they, this didn't end one product. Uh, from a system level, um, you know, let, let's talk about that for a second. The other end of this is, so what is the alternative? If you see out in the marketplace today uh, what's going on in terms of innovation, the majority of innovations coming out today are actually software innovations, uh, you know, applications and yes. software pieces. And to be honest with you, those actually have less value in the long term of society because they solve a problem using the tools that have been put in place by materials and process innovation, by other problems that are created. And the problems are often temporary. They're artifacts of certain difficulties we currently have. They solve those well. And you see this in the marketplace. An app may, we, may work well for about six months, and then somebody comes up with a better variant of it, or the problem goes away, and all of a sudden the value is gone. Okay, so. The reason I, I bring that up, Marty, is that if you look at enduring value, 
value that lasts forever. Uh, materials and process innovations, they never go away. Once rubber was created, uh, all that we did now was focus on variants of rubber, on improving the rubber equation, on changing the processes that manufacture rubber, and the, the, the trillions of dollars of value that came out of that and the benefit to humanity uh, are just unquestionable, okay? Uh, so I try to focus on the bottom of that pyramid first. Not that software is not a good thing. Software is a wonderful thing. And all these systems innovations are wonderful. But from a company like Parker, those materials and process innovations, they are the root. Yeah, I tell people software is a key enabling tool even in manufacturing. That <laughs> said, if I have 25K and develop a new app, I can frame a company, sell an IPO, and make instant money. But you're not in it for the long term, right? It's a near-term reward kind of process we've set up. On the other hand, if you go into manufacturing, it's very capital intensive. And yet, as you inferred, it's good for 10, 20, yeah. 30 years. And that's a high return on investment. Pete, well, that's a good I, point, I, I think, Marty, to bring up the, yeah. the, uh, the big data topic you had mentioned earlier. Yes. Okay. Because really, that's a, that's a really interesting look at this. Um, big data is the, the road to insight. And the reason that we believe that this, uh, this new world of uh, smart machines, machine-to-machine -machine communication, the ability to analyze data in more effective ways, why that's so valuable to people is because we think that will lead to insights that will give us uh, a view as to what new materials need to be manufactured, what problems need to be solved to make things work out from a long-term standpoint. So I would, I would say that uh, even though we, I, I, I spoke a little negatively about applications, I really didn't mean to disparage no, I, I application development, but if you look at big data, uh, this idea that uh, if we learn something because of our analysis of data about how a process should be or where a problem really is, okay, that could lead to value as endurable as materials or process. It could be the, the, the pointer mm -hmm. toward what new material is needed and what features are really required and how we can solve a problem in a totally unique way. Uh, going back to biomimicry, right? Um, you know, one of the, the principles of biomimicry that we, we, are, we are signing up to is the, we need to, to limit the number of materials that we use to solve problems. That uh, in terms of toxicity, in terms of uh, sustainability, when we choose materials to solve problems that are, that are causing us to use toxic chemistries, either in process or in the product itself, we probably have made a mistake, okay? Now, in many cases, there are no alternatives to that. But you know, the, the ability to learn in biomimicry to try to solve with the, the standard materials first, you know, the things like uh, calcium, the things like oxygen, carbon, uh, the way nature solves problems, those result in enduring solutions, those result in, in uh, solutions that are better for the environment, better for us from a toxicity standpoint, and better for a company because we have less risk exposure to those kind of things being out in the marketplace. You know, no one wants to solve problems using toxic chemistries, but if there's no alternative and the problem still has to be solved, it's, someone has to do it. Exactly. You know? Uh, so that's a conflict for every industry, not just Parker Hanna. Yeah, and you hear more and more companies now are going back to mining and mapping the database they have for every material they use. They it's future availability, <coughs> price points. They are. If there's regional instability, what does that mean to its availability? If you listen to 60 Minutes, we're all scared to death about rare earth metals. But that's another part of what makes this so uh, interesting. You, you have to know when you have to make those transitions and do it in an economic way. It keeps right. the market. 
which is a great challenge. I really want to thank you for coming. Uh, your passion about technology, innovation, and developing the next generation of talent uh, jumps off the screen. So I'll give you one last question that gives you the ability to plug once the Buckeye Regional. And if people want to come and see some young kids working on system solutions, when do they need to be in Cleveland? Do you have a date? Yeah, so March 14th and March 16th, 2016, at the Wallstein Center in Cleveland is the date for the first robotics. Buckeye Regional Competition. It's one of the most fantastic events. You'll ever see 60 high school teams will be showing up, each carrying a 120-pound robot and a team of anywhere from 10 to 100 people with them uh, to support the robot. And they'll be uh, competing for three days up in Cleveland. Uh, These are incredible events. And if anyone here is interested in changing the world, uh, support a first team, come to the Buckeye Regional and learn what kids are doing today with the, uh, the technology that they've, that they've uh, been Fantastic. offered. Fantastic. And thanks for keeping that alive. Pete, thanks right. for coming today. Thanks, Marty.